Programming Throwdown, episode 122. Building Conversational AIs with Joe Bradley. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So uh, one of my most fond memories is playing this game, this really esoteric game called Essex, which I think is named after a place in, in the UK. But it was this game where it was like Zork, if people are familiar with that. But it was one of these text-based story games where you would type, you know, go north, go west. And 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 the thing that amazed me, I mean, I was maybe seven or eight years old. The thing that amazed me was that I could, I felt like I could just say anything to these computer players and um, and that they would respond with really interesting things. And it, it ran on a single floppy disk. And so, you know, honestly, to this day, it kind of blows my mind. But as a child, it just completely blew my mind. I mean, I was wondering if there was a real person somehow involved like you know in, in real time and i've always been really interested in conversational ai and i feel like we're all just exceptionally lucky to have joe bradley here who's the chief scientist at live person who is an expert in this field and really going to talk to us about how conversational ai kind of works a bit of the the history behind it and and you know how kind of a live person and other folks do it today so thanks so much for coming on the show joe Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and even more excited about the fact that you just brought up Zork. For me, that was the one. It wasn't the, uh, you know, the Essex or, or that that I, I didn't know about. But but yeah, I spent hours doing that as a kid. And it's funny, too. I have, I have children myself now and I see them, you know, just just last week I went downstairs and they're not playing Zork. Right. But they're playing the equivalent on, you know, the Amazon device on the Alexa somebody's coded up a, a little like exploration game and now they're talking to that. It's, but it's re, it's essentially the same interface just with the you know voice instead of text. And it's still fun for them, which I think is like really interesting, even in this age of like, hey, does everything have to be these like cool looking graphics? And, you know, what's the UX got to be like? There's still something powerful about just talking to a machine like you can like like you want to and, and in a way that's easy, in a way that's natural for you. And then having the thing respond and tell you a story. Right. That's that's cool. Still. Yeah. I think that, you know, when it's abstract like that, you kind of, you know, your mind fills in those gaps and and fills them in in a way that's like really interesting and pleasing to you. Right. And so it's that's kind of the um, I think who's the Scott McLeod, I want to say, if I'm getting that right. But he wrote a book about understanding comics and and he explains that the reason why comics are are you know originally they're meant to be written really quickly but but another reason why comics work so well as a medium is that they're so abstract that when you watch for example Dilbert you kind of put yourself into Dilbert versus if if Dilbert was photorealistic you wouldn't you wouldn't really be able to do that as easily and so yeah games like Zork and Essex are they do that they your mind fills in all those gaps yeah they hit this spot for us that's like you know, if you think about how evolved we are to have conversation, right, and how important conversation is to us as like as human beings, right? It's the fundamental way in which, you know, we created efficiency, resources, wealth, right? All the things that we have today is that are are founded on the abstractions that make conversational po conversations possible, right? Language itself, and then the ability to have those in a, in a two way or multi way dialogue so that you can build more than just what's inside your own mind, right? So 
So I think in some ways it's like surprising when I look at my kids playing Zork on, on that device. And in other ways, it's, you know, it's like, oh no, wait, we're evolved to do this. Like, this is what we want. We want to build stories. And, and now it's just interesting. It's kind of interesting that the last 30, 40 years, we've be- begun to be able to do that with inanimate objects, right? And, and that, that like we sort of know and we sort of don't care and it's sort of still fun. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so I want to dive into, I'd love to, to know how these things, how Zork works and then also fast forwarding the future. But before we get into the, the tech side of it, you know, what is kind of your background and what led you to building conversational AI at, at Life Person? What's that story like? Yeah, it's a little, I don't, I don't want to say topsy turvy because it's not a bad story in my mind, but it's definitely a little all over the place. So I, uh, you know, if you go back far enough, you start getting to, you know, like a, like an interest in opera singing and, you know, in a major in English literature and a whole bunch of stuff that like doesn't fit very well with, with where I am today, at least not in most people's minds. So for me, you know, it's like, I tend to find like have moments of like five year kind of moments in my life where I get really, really passionate about something. And those, those end up like being a stepping stone to kind of somewhere else. Uh, and so when I was, uh, you know, out of undergraduate school and, and starting, you know, working as a classroom teacher in San Francisco, I got reminded about how, you know, I was teaching math and science to, to seventh graders, which is by the way, the hardest job I've ever done by a factor of 10. I, you know, it sounds difficult. I, I remember middle school as being one of the hardest points I've only ever been in one fist fight in my entire life, other than martial arts, which doesn't count. And it was in middle school because uh, somebody, oh, I was playing basketball and I blocked somebody because I'm, I'm a very tall, but I'm not, I'm not particularly athletic, but I do have the height and I blocked someone and he was upset. And actually, I wouldn't really call it a fist fight. He just punched me in the face <laughs> and I was really upset about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I think middle school is an extremely challenging age. And, uh, you know, Patrick and I also have kids. And so that's, that's an age I'm not really looking forward to, but we'll have to get through it. Yeah, I mean, a couple like I I will not forget the the day one of my students. She was this probably about six foot tall, twelve year old girl looked at me and she said, "I was like just getting started." And I it was like a you know, like I said, it was this undergrad English English major who was like, "I want to go be helpful. I want to go do something meaningful in a you know in in a city." And I had just moved to San Francisco, so I got this job teaching. And I was a couple months in. I wasn't. I was not good at it yet. I hadn't figured it out. And she looks up at me and she says, Hey, Mr. Bradley, this class is just like WWF Smackdown. <laughs> and I like, I mean, I hung my head that day. Like it was, it was not like, I, cause she was right. Right. I was like, wow, this is, um, this is not good. I, uh, and I mean, thankfully the institution of public school in, in San Francisco was very helpful. They brought me this mentor teacher who, who had all this knowledge about how to work with kids. It's really just like, like simple things that you'd never think of, right? Like don't talk about what one kid isn't doing well, stand next to them and talk to the kid who's doing it right and praise them. And then the other kid's going to suddenly look up and want to do the right thing. You know, all these sort of tricks of the trade yep, that yep. were just like changing, life-changing for me. But anyway, yeah. So to get back to your question, you know, I, I, I sort of rediscovered a love I had for math. I'd studied it a bit in college and I was I was doing teacher training on you know negative adding negative numbers or something like that. How do you how do you teach a twelve year old how to do that? And what 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 are good visualizations and all these things? And it just brought back to me like oh man like I had so many questions and so much farther I wanted to take that 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 led me back to school. Uh, and so I went to school for a master's degree in mathematics at 
you know, at SF State University, San Francisco State University, part of the Cal State system, which which I think deserves a plug because I feel extremely fortunate to have been able to go get an advanced degree in mathematics and pay something at the time, like 800 bucks a semester to do it. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Yeah. It's more now. I know it's more now, but I think it's still a pretty good deal. And back then it's, you know, that's, that's life-changing stuff, right? Like these are cultural yep. institutions or, you know, that we have built for ourselves that, that affect people's progress in life dramatically. And so that was a special, I think that's a special institution for me. That was a special time. Uh, you know, and that kind of led into physics, right? Like I was doing the math. And I was like, well, I want to I want to do something with this math as, as fun as the abstraction is. I've always kind of been attracted to abstraction. I want it, I want it to be good for something. So I ended up going up to University of Washington, moving up to Seattle and, and working on a PhD in physics. And that kind of led me to, you know, a lot, obviously more applied mathematics, obviously beginning to work in statistics much more deeply because I ended up doing a bunch of experimental work and, you know, in addition to turning bolts and building instruments and firing x-rays and lasers and stuff, like you've got to go do the data analysis. And we started to think that there were some, you know, more advanced statistical analyses that would help us understand convolutions of data and all these things that, so that started, started to filter in. And as I became a full-time scientist, I just found a lot more passion for that when I was working at the national labs. And it was one like sort of component of a larger decision that led me to, to change tracks and end up kind of in, you know, in the industry I'm in today. And, and that was kind of by way of Amazon, right? So I sent all these resumes out because I was interested in, I, was like, I get into machine learning, it's a live field, it's new. I think I, you know, have been reading the papers. I've been, been like, this is a fun time, you know, as opposed to physics, which is like hundreds of years old and everything's super sub-disciplined and, you know, very, very narrow and very, very tight. Um, and it takes a long time to approach anything state of the art. I was like machine learning. Well, this is different, right? This is new. This is live. You can, you know, you can learn it, you know, not quickly. It's not easy. I don't mean to say that, but you can get to the front of the discipline, you know, much more effectively. And I think there's just a lot of like ways in which knowledge is shared in the ML community and they're pioneering like the sort of academic research and shared code and all these things that like wasn't really happening in physics that that's starting to now. Yeah, I think I think you're seeing the same thing with economics. So I've always been really interested in economics and um, and what you're seeing is ML start because ultimately economics is is especially microeconomics is ultimately about people and the way they behave. And so and so you need to, it's statistical by nature because we're not going to have a human brain processor. So we're going to be estimating that. And uh, and so, yeah, you're seeing ML make a ton of strides in that field. And I think at some point ML will diffuse and just be a part of all of these fields. And ML, as we know it now, will become more of like a core, you know, how do we make the learning really well? But I think we'll get to the point where maybe even conversational AI won't even be ML. It might be part of like a speech understanding or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think if you really back up and think about what machine learning is, and and even if you even if you think about that in the context of the neural nets, what are they really doing? They're taking these like these qualitatively different kind of problems because they have such a high degree of dimensionality and such a weird set of correlations across the variables that describe them. And then they're trying to find these like really, really useful lo local potential minimum in them, right? Like these really, really useful like solutions, whether or not they're, you know, the perfect or the global, you know, and I mean, I know there's a whole branch of ML that's devoted to finding, you know, convex problems and all that stuff, right? Like, but, but I think the way the field's evolving is we realize that like real problems are like way too dimensionally complex 
to solve in those exact ways or to, or to even approximate towards those global solutions. And, and we're all just okay with sort of these local solutions. But that's going to like, like any field that has anything approximating a real problem, and most good fields do, it's going to benefit from, from that basic approach, I think. I mean, it obviously creates new problems of like, well, how do you know if your answer is good enough and what does good enough mean? But for real problems, like those are, you know, questions you just have to cope with. Yeah. So, so you didn't have a CS, don't have a CS uh, degree, correct? No, no. I'm a, like a research self-taught programmer at start anyway. And I got a little bit of a crash course about how bad a programmer that made me when I worked at Amazon for sure. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's go, let's back up a tiny bit. How did you interview at Amazon? Cause this is something we get asked constantly you know, someone says, I have a background in physics, or I have a background in economics, or I have a background in chemical engineering. And so, and, and I want to interview at Amazon. How did you get that right mindset to be able to do that? Yeah. So, so I, I, it was a case of like, there's a little bit of luck in there, but I also was intentional about how I did it. So I can't claim this will always work, but I think it was a relatively smart strategy. Uh, so I'll, I'll explain it a little bit. So I did, as I said, I sent out a bunch of resumes and heard very little back, right? It's like, who's this? You know, basically, I think people would see that resume and be like, who's this national lab physicist, like doing x-ray experiments? Like, yeah, get get this thing off my desk is like, was kind of an easy response for, for most sane humans to have. Or sadly, it's it's even an AI. So a person didn't even have an opportunity to see the potential, right? Could be. I mean, I, we definitely, our recruiters at Live Person, right? They look at a lot of resumes still, but... But I think there's search queries. You know, you got to be smart about how you set up your resume. You want to have the right search terms on it, all this stuff. Like you got to get past, you got to get a human looking at it. That's true. Yep. And then what I did is I wrote, even though it wasn't asked for or common at the time, and it's probably less so now, uh, I wrote what I thought was a thoughtful cover letter explaining what the heck I was doing there and why the heck I thought this made sense. And so I tried to break down my experience. In particular, I, I spent, you know, a, like a while crafting this paragraph about how I had been doing these experiments in a national lab context where we'd go in and we'd have limited x-ray beam time and we'd sit down and, and we'd have, you know, 24 hours to conduct the experiment. And we had to be very thoughtful about how we planned it. We had to be very good at troubleshooting problems. We had to, you know, we had to really deliver in this, in this very tight, constrained environment where we were not going to be successful. And my pitch was like, here's, look at, look at what I've delivered. Here's the output, the output of these publications, this advance in this field. Right. So I tried to get, I didn't want to make that like a four page monologue, right. That was like, had to whittle that down to, you know, to four or five good sentences. Uh, and there was some recruiter, I, I, I knew her at one point, I've forgotten her name now, cause it's been quite a while. Um, it'll probably come to me after the, after the call, but there was this woman who, who was a recruiter who saw it and read it and just thought like, she was just like, I think this could work. Right. I think we should talk to this guy. Uh, and, and I, I did talk to her, as I said, I talked to her you know, later after I joined Amazon, I had a couple of conversations with her and she kind of relayed this to me that, that, that reading some of that text was important. It was an important part in her decision-making. It wasn't the only thing, of course, but I think that's smart to do. I think, you know, obviously you got to get past the, the sort of AI or the querying, all that stuff. Uh, but then you should remember there's a, if you remember, there's a human on the other end of this and they need me to make sense. If I'm not coming from what they see and what they expect, they need me to make sense of why my experience Fits and and how that story should go together. We're all narrative machines in the end, right? So they need me to give them that narrative and and take the time and the space in your resume or in a cover letter, however you do it, to to make sure that story is told and make sure that story is clear, but also make sure it's like super concise and tight. Like I can't make that point strongly enough. If you write well, 
uh, you you know that also says something. And it, you don't have a lot of attention. You should imagine you've got 30 seconds of attention if you're lucky. How do I tell that story that quick? Yeah, absolutely. And so when you went to Amazon, were you working on conversational AI on day one? Or is that something that you, a team that you transitioned to later? So I ended up doing you know, a number of natural language applications at Amazon and at, um, uh, at Nike subsequently, right? A lot of it related to how, to how people are, you know, like what, what interests, what kinds of interests they have in products, what, you know, what's useful to them about products, things like that, what, what their website experience was like, a lot of analysis of, of text. Uh, and, you know, I started building conversational AI uh, with some of the experts we have at LivePerson, you know, that uh, my real first foray into conversational AI was, was with LivePerson. Like that's where I began ah, okay. to build. Uh, and, and we've brought on a lot of people. So I consider myself a little bit more of a generalist. Uh, you know, my background's more statistics, machine learning, et cetera. I obviously have learned a lot about conversational AI in the last three, four years working at LP. Um, but we of course have, have people that have spent their whole careers on it as well. Got it. Okay. So if you could kind of lay the land for us here. So there's natural language processing, which I think, and please correct me here is, 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 uh, is an umbrella that covers, let's say translation, um, maybe embeddings or semantic understandings of, of language. Um, and, and conversational AI would also be under that umbrella of NLP. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that most people would agree with that. It's it's like most designations like this, where there's always you know somebody who feels like no, 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 my under you know my my semantic description of this field is more accurate. But <laughs> right, yeah. But yeah, I mean, by and large, NLP is like a big box, and inside that box goes like the science of processing natural language, right? Like kind of quite literally, uh, and and conversational AI is a kind of processing of natural language. It's a very specific one, obviously a very important one. We think. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fair. You also have and inside a conversational AI and or inside of natural language processing, you know, you have the the subfield of natural language understanding, right? Which is uh, which is again very important to conversational AI, uh, and, and that's sort of this, uh, you know, again, it's another one of these ones that like is what it says it is, right? So it, it is the science of trying to, you know, use uh, use algorithms to create. You know, what do, you, what do we mean by understanding? Essentially a, a structured form of, or, or a structured interpretation of words of natural language that we use, you know, go from this like unstructured text, you know, go from that format and, and sort of begin to categorize and, you know, and adorn these natural language utterances with, with like things that are meaningful us in, to us in the abstract. Yeah, that makes sense. And then in the other direction, then you're talking about natural language generation, where you say I have this this structure, this JSON, which which has uh, this information that I know somebody needs. I, you know, the, the movie starts at this time, or this is when your pizza order is ready, and it has to get turned into text that people would uh, like. Uh, it would feel natural to them. That's right. Yeah, you've got that. You know, the the sort of semantic box of metadata however you get it, you know, wherever that arose from some system did some processing and, and said like, here's, here's the semantics or the meaning of what I want you to say machine. Uh, and then the, the NLG portion, like basically input is that output is spoken language or written language or whatever it is. The other piece in the middle there that, you know, people can slice and dice in different ways. Uh, and it's still a, a very open sort of research question is, is really around all the dialogue management. Right. So you have 
you have the understanding of the, the text coming in or the words coming in. Let, let's assume it's just written text because then there, you, know, you can always kind of model the, the speech and the voice side as at the other end of this pipeline. So you have text coming in, you have this understanding capability whose job it is to, you know, decide what, what it means that, what, what it means, what was said or what, what, what was said means, I guess is the best way to say that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that comes in a structure now that interacts with the dialogue manager or, you know, and again, that, that can kind of be a few pieces, but, but broadly speaking, uh, dialogue manager's job is to take that information, understand it in the context of you know, what's going on in the conversation up until now. And some managers do a lot of that and some managers do none of that, but fun logically that's the responsibility of this piece of the system. Uh, and, and then to turn that into a next action. Uh, and then that, that next action gets passed out as, as, you know, like one element of that next action. There may be lots of things that happen, right? It may go call an API and check your balance for your bank or whatever it is. Uh, but it's also gonna, you know, result very likely or most of the time in, in wanting to send you some text back. And so, you know, in a system that has a, a, a decoupled NLG component, as you mentioned before, it will send back now this, this metadata blob and the NLG's job will be to go and, to go and turn that into uh, you know, language and, and thus kind of conversation, right? So, so those I think are the, like in big, big animal letters, so to speak, mm -hmm. those are kind of the big blocks here um, as far as a conversational AI system goes. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so I think if I remember correctly, Zork didn't have conversation. Um, it was it was more of like a pick up sword, hit hit troll. I mean, it's been a long, long time since I played that. But, but uh, there there have been interactive fictions with conversation from a long time ago, like this SX one. I'm sure there are other ones of of, of its era. And I, and trying to unpack it today, I I think what they were doing is. They probably had some WordNet ontology, uh, you know, on the disk, and so I think maybe what they were doing was was, you know, they were they were taking your sentence of what you told the avatar, and they were looking at each word and they were maybe traversing up this WordNet. So just a bit of background for folks: WordNet is basically a tree of the English language, and it's been around for a very long time. So you could imagine, I, I think the root word is entity, if I remember correctly. So everything is a child of entity. And, um, you know, there's there's objects and abstractions. So if you were to take like, like happy, happy would be an emotion, which is an abstraction, which is an entity. And so you could kind of go up this chain. And so if, are, if I ask this avatar in this, this, this game from the 1980s, you know, are you happy or are you, uh, I don't know, I guess elated or something like that? What they would do is they would go up this WordNet chain, and then they probably by hand kind of thought about what to do if they get these really high-level words, and they were able to kind of cover you know a pretty broad range there. And and so my guess is there's something like that, and they were just pulling out individual words, and then if they see that word, then they know okay, this person asked me about the key, or the person asked me about being sad. So start the sad narrative where this person can go on this quest to make me not sad anymore, things like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, and I think you described then like a lot of, you know, what natural language understanding, you know, was and kind of had to be for a long time, right? And like that, there was, there were sort of techniques like that, uh, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of like different, very ornate 
uh, ways of dealing with language because language is exceptionally complicated and dialogue even more so, right? Like just, just the understanding piece of this has been a extremely important and huge research effort for a long, long time, right? And, and I think a lot of times, a lot of times we sort of claim it's a lot more closed down today than it really is. Like that's sort of something interesting to talk about too, is like, how good are we at, at natural language understanding? How good are we at, at dialogue handling? Um, and my answer is we're not as good as we think we are, neither in the academic nor in the professional context. Uh, and, and like part of doing this work well is, um, you know, is beginning with that recognition and then realizing that we have to build, you know, tools and capabilities to help us, you know, get to the level set where we kind of, where many of us kind of already believe we are. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. There's hype in both the professional and the academic context, which would also be interesting to talk about. But I, but I do, but you do see, uh, you know, it, material advances that are very, very meaningful in the same way that we saw for computer vision, you know, starting back in 2006, you know, the, the beginning of a neural net approach and the first kind of, you know, early auto encoders, right, um, that that start to change that problem around. And then the development of convolutional neural networks that, you know, where the, the network sort of satisfies some of the symmetries of this of the system itself and and that allows it to work really well and and kind of kind of like reshape the functional capacity of these networks well enough so that they can you know they make really good guesses at these approximate local minima we were talking about before uh you start to see some of that happen in the last five to ten years in the natural language space uh but it's hard it's frankly harder in my opinion because like i can talk about what the symmetries of physical space are right like you know move left move right move up move down rotate reflect yeah, I mean, if you're training something to like play chess or something and you flip the board, you know, on its axis, your strategy doesn't have to change or it's it's a mirror strategy. And so you could even just directly, you know, hack that into the system and now it only has to learn half as much. But for language, it's totally unclear what that symmetry is. Well, yeah, I mean, what is it? Like a symmetry in language is like a synonym or an antonym. Yeah, right. Right. And so, so how do you teach a computer to understand that? Right. And I think what, what, if you start to break the problems apart like that, like it starts to become clear, or at least you can make a good intuitive explanation for why, you know, attention mechanisms are really meaningful and why the neural nets for, for some of these modern applications have developed the way that they have, because they're, they're trying to solve some of these symmetry problems in the same way that you and I do. Like, you know, you know, words through context, right. And, and, and we're really good at recognizing like which elements of context, like actually um, impact each other, even in like a long form piece of text. So, um, so I think we've started to learn some of that. Uh, and, and I think obviously there's been, you know, a lot of major advances recently I uh, separating out like what's kind of hype or, or what it means to have advanced with something like a GPT-3, for example, what, like what that really is good at versus what it's really not good at. I think that's that's actually very hard for us in some ways because of the nature of what it's doing. It's producing, you know, such a, such compelling text on its own that it's hard for us not to imagine, you know, like a like a some kind of Wizard of Oz entity back there that's like all knowing that's doing that um, and really tease it out. Yeah, I, I thought the I thought the um, there's one research. I, I'm sure it's a whole body of research, but but it, I thought it was really fascinating. I can't remember if it's using GANs or transformers. I don't totally remember, but um, it would um, it would caption an image. So you would give it an image, and what would come out would be you know a girl is sitting on a red swing, you know, talking to a boy near a tree, 
And I thought that was so cool. I mean, when I saw that, that blew my mind. And uh, I felt like that, I, I mean, well, I actually, it would be great to know for your opinion. I mean, it could be, it could be hype because I don't know the tech, the tech that well, but I feel like we reached a milestone when I saw that paper. No, no, I 100% agree with you. So the automatic image captioning is an example. It's almost an anti-example of like GPT in some ways, because what that's doing, and it, and there's a long way to go there. I mean, you know, you're not going to, it's not going to approximate, you know, really complex tasks. It's not going to handle really com complex tasks the way that like you and I, with the elo eloquence that you and I would or any human, but, but, but it did something fundamentally different, right? Which is the, to do that research. Uh, and a lot of this came out of Google, you know, in, in sort of the image search space, like there's, I think a, a lot of Genesis there, but to do that work well, what had to happen is you had to develop a shared mathematical representation of the visual image and of the text, right? And so the way you typically train models like this, I mean, it's been a while since I looked at this research, so this could have changed, but the last time I looked at it, which was several years ago, the way you typically train models like that is you have like, you know, two vectors, you know, one representing the, you know, the, the sort of vectorized form of the speech or the language, one representing the vectorized form of the, of the image, and then you're trying to optimize their inner product, right? So they're getting closer and closer together. Yeah. What, just to double click on that. So we, we ha had an episode, our last episode was with um, um, the CEO of Pinecone and Pinecone is a vector similarity database. And we talked about how um, you can take sort of any classification problem um, or even in an unsupervised or self-supervised way, you can kind of take uh, a chunk of data and you can uh, create a, a embedding or a very you know, relatively low dimensional representation of that. And, and what Joe's here talking about is, is you, know, you can actually do this with two different media and, and try to join them together. Um, you know, when, when you've seen them together on the same website, or if you have a, a hand curated set, and now you end up with two things that are projected into the same space, and then you can go backwards, uh, with one of them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sorry for not giving a little more background there, but to me, that's fascinating because what it's, it, it's this, it's like a step in teaching a system to have a multimodal representation of reality. Right. So now it's now the image and the text are in a shared space, as you say, a shared mathematical space, a shared semantic space, which is how you and I work. Right. Like we don't differentiate, you know, like the concept of red dress, you know, the words and the picture of that in a physical red dress. It's, that's all you know, those are all of a piece for us. Right. Those all the, those are all related, um, like obviously very strongly. Related. It's just different representations of the same fundamental object. So I think that and that's very much not what like GPT did. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to talk trash about GPT. I think it's an amazing advancement. Um, in some ways, I think we should think of these big language models as like national resources that we're building because they, I mean, they literally take as much power, like you measure the power required to train one of these, th one of these things like in units of Hoover Dam, like that kind of, that like, that's actually a reasonable scale. Like it's, I forget how many like Hoover Dam days it is to train GPT, but it's not <laughs> like 0.0005 or anything. It's like a real number. Yep. Yep. And you can transfer learn off of it. So uh, it really is. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. It really is like a national treasure that we've all spent uh, a ton of, of time and energy curating and now everyone can benefit. Yeah. yeah with, a, with a whole bunch of infrastructure required to do it, right? You can't yep. go do that without the data centers. You can't go do that without, you know, industrial strength power lines going everywhere, right? And yada, yada, yada. Yep. But, but GPT is different, right? It's what it's trained on is not 
and it's not trying to find this like multimodal representation, right? It's trained on basically most of the text of the internet, right? So, so it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a window into what us is a very, what for us is like a, like a projection of reality onto text, right? That is GPT's reality, right? That's what it knows, right? Which is why, you know, and we start to think about it like that, it, it, like the ways in which the model's amazing and the ways in which the model's confusing, at least to me, start to make a little bit more sense, right? You can ask, so you, so you think, all right, if I train this model on this and I ask it who the president of the United States is and, you know, in 1815, it's going to give me a good answer because it's like, it's, it's got all these good relations. It's, it's got a bunch of text to work with that could tell it that answer. I mean, obviously it's an amazing advance that we're able to synthesize that into a, you know, into a, a system that can, that can make the inference. But then it's also like, if you go and ask it, who, who was the president in 1705, right? Before the country was instantiated, it'll give you a reasonable answer of a person who's kind of sort of presidential. <laughs> right? It could be like Ben Franklin or whoever, you know, the, yeah. that's probably too early for Ben Franklin. But but yeah, you, you can go and, and sort of trick it with these questions and these premises. And it doesn't do a great job, you know, without some further prompting and some further help in like understanding that that question doesn't make sense in that context, because it's this it's this really big and sophisticated association machine that doesn't have larger political context, like doesn't really you know, understand what it means in the same way that you and I do for some of these historical events to have taken place. It's it's really doing much more associative work. And, and a lot of that's that thin layer of like, it's just on this, like if language is kind of a membrane of our reality, right? You know, it's, it's stuck on that membrane um, and, and it can't escape. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think so. Correct me if I'm wrong. GPT-3 is trained such that you, they, they take like the, uh, a string of N words and then they try and predict the the next word, the n plus oneth word. And so, what you end up with is now you can give GPT three a sentence or a paragraph or what have you. It will uh, generate the next word that it feels like belongs there. So, what you just described is fundamentally what a language model is. Um, and GPT three is a language model, right? So, what like mathematically, the definition of a language model is like given n words, predict the n plus first. Uh, and however you get there, however you want to do that, that could be a set of rules in the background that could be, you know, whatever, like some algorithm has got to do that job. And then once you have the reason that's an important construct in the field is that once you have that, it unlocks all these other things. Right. It's like now I can I can ask questions. I can, I can turn that prediction and the underlying representations of the text and the knowledge that fuel it uh, into really, you know, all the many of the applications that we care about today. Right. So it's, it's kind of a building block. Uh, and so GPT, you know, and you train these language models in different ways. Like you don't always train it, you know, specifically train it only for that with that task, right? Like that is the mathematical sort of fundamental definition of what task a language model has to perform. But there are a lot, there's lots of transfer learning and, and oh, okay. um, like different ways you get the model to be good at doing that. And then, of course, on the other side, there's a bunch of applications you go and you go and turn on for it. So but a lot of yeah, a lot of this sort of self-supervised aspect of training language models is really about you know, making adjudications of how good or how well a word fits in its context. And the nice thing about something like GPT-3 is that although you have to use, you know, Hoover Dam days worth of energy, uh, you don't have to do any manual labeling because, because it's self-supervised. It's just scanning this data from the internet and it's trying to learn to learn the rhythm of this data and it can just see right away, did I predict this word correctly or not without any human intervention? 
Yeah, no, that's why it's powerful, and that's also why it's limited. Right? You, you, there's only, you know, there's only so much you can learn that way. Uh, but there's a lot you can learn that way, and as a baseline for learning other things, it's it's kind of the best one we've got right now. That's why people are so excited about it, and and it's it's pretty cool. I mean, we didn't have anything like this 15 years ago, and now now we have models that can tell us stories that that really are you know, rapturous in their detail, right? I, I think it, it was brilliant to bring out GPT-3 with the, you know, the article that it wrote about itself, right? Is a, <laughs> yeah, like right. an amazing way to illustrate that, uh, hey guys, we're onto something new here. Like this is, we're, you know, we're in Star Trek territory kind of sort of a little bit. Yeah, so, so bring us back down to earth. In my opinion, I feel like there's two big pieces that are missing and there's probably a lot more, but, but I'd love to get your take on it. I think one piece that's missing is um, getting uncertainty estimations about uh, from from really any of these models. And so, to your point, you know, to where they can you say, "What is the American president in 59 BC?" The model should just say, "Well, like I'm not confident about anything here, right?" And then the second point is having some kind of symbolic understanding to where you know it can understand you know, mod in a modular way can understand and compartmentalize, you know, America as a concept and when that concept started. And you can use like some first order predicate logic to say, well, you know, the question is invalid because of these, these sort of symbols. I think that we've gone to this sort of this, this, uh, embedding soup. And because of that, we've lost the ability to to think about things and reason about things in like a logical, methodical, search kind of based way. And I feel like those are the two, at least in my opinion, the two big missing pieces. Yeah, they're both really, really interesting and they're great points. Um, let me try and like at least take on one of them. Maybe we'll get to both because I'd love to talk about both. So as far as like the logic point that you make, I so look, I agree with both your points, first of all. Um, I think mm -hmm. those things are missing. Uh, I think the logical element or the higher order logic, uh, we don't know how to teach computers to do well. I, I personally don't think the answer is, at least not in, in as flexible a way as you and I do it when, when we sort of think through the universe as we do. I don't think the answer is to construct a kind of symbology of it, right? That, that, it, that like then these inferences are going to like be mapped into and then, and then there'll be some like some kind of logical computation that happens on the symbology. And then that's going to go back to the, to the embedding space and like, give it a different, I don't think, I actually don't think that'll work. I mean, I could be wrong. What do I know? I'm just, just, just one, one guy. Uh, but the reason I, I think that space, like that space of like, what is, what are the constructs and what are the abstractions that we use to make decisions at the higher order logic is itself just as complicated as the reality it's trying to simplify. Right. In terms of like the relations between the constructs and, and the boundaries, a lot of things are complicated because the boundaries around what what is this construct versus, you know, not like what's in the set and what's not in the set are just hard questions. And so I think in the end, we're going to have to find a way to teach a machine to construct representations like that for itself. Right. But it's but there is there is going to have to be some notion or some some parallel process that serves the same function of the logical hierarchies that you and I would use. Um, and like, you know, we teach humans how to do that. Right. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it, when you get into like deep political disagreements, like sometimes at the root of that is just a, like a, you know, kind of a, a misalignment of some of these definitions of, of categories. I think, uh, just to riff on that, like, uh, one thing that, that 
I think paves a way is the Mu Zero. I don't know if you've been following Mu Zero from DeepMind, but but you know DeepMind, uh, uh, you know their claim to fame or their initial claim to fame was beating the world master uh, at Go. So so Go is this board game. It's just a lot more complicated um, in terms of branching and, and other stuff than chess. And they were able to beat uh, Lisa Dahl, and 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 now a computer is the world Go champion. But they didn't stop there. The the next thing they did is they built something called Alpha Zero, and Alpha Zero removed all of the Go specific logic, and it treated it as just a field of. Now they did have to do some feature engineering, right? So you can imagine, you know, Go has just white and black stones. Chess doesn't. Chess has a whole bunch of variety, and so. You have to do some proper feature engineering, um, but you know beyond that, the rules of Go and all these tricks were not in Alpha Zero, and it was able to perform just as well as Alpha Go. And uh, but you know what what they did have written in hand uh, by hand is is the the game tree. So when they're doing this game tree search, they're still the mechanics of Go are built into that. So so in other words, Alpha Zero will say and and this. Now it's alpha zero, so it works on many games. Alpha zero will say, take this move, this go move, this checkers move, this chess move. And then that would go into some program that a person wrote that would make the move, you know, adjust the game appropriately, tell them if they won or not. And then um, um, and then it would go, and then it would uh, and then that would conclude a simulation. So they would simulate using the hand-coded engine um, after so many simulations, and they have a good action, right? So then they took it to the next level with Mu Zero, where in Mu Zero, um, they don't even use the rules of the game. And so actually in the neural network, it has to represent the rules of the game and it actually has to do the simulation in the neural net. I think they're using like an LSTM or a transformer or something. And so literally they've gotten to a point now where you give it a Go board and it thinks for a while and it does all these simulations and it just comes back and it says, you know, place the stone here. Um, and I feel like that they're starting to unpack that that planning and that reasoning and that symbology. It's it's totally uninterpretable to us, but they're starting to unpack that process, which I think is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like if you had a, a, a child, right? And you you ask them to like you never told them how to play the game but you just let them watch you know a bunch of people play like would they like how well would they do in understanding the rules and could they construct that abstraction and that's probably like you know easier for some people harder for others but but fundamentally possible right like we don't we wouldn't see that as beyond us um i think it's i think it's interesting yeah i, I think you're right i think that is like like i like the way you put that kind of like what's fundamental about that advance i think what um what it's important to remember too is that that playing field, so to speak, or that area of you know board games like that, is so ridiculously simpler than you know than any like sort of knowledge or human conversation or or language based yep. you know kind of real application that we have. I used to give these talks where I would talk about like okay, you know, everybody wants everybody who's kind of like first who's learning a lot about machine learning I'm, and I'm not trying to put you in this box just as you just referenced something in my mind but everybody who's trying to first learn 
or who kind of sort of first learns about how to get machine learning done in one co context, rolls into the a conversational context, and they have kind of the same idea, right? Which is they're like, cool, I just, I need a feedback loop here, right? Like I just need, what I need is like somebody, you know, person's talking to the computer and like good thing happens or bad thing happens at the end. And then I, and as soon as I have that, I'm going to like, going to do the self-optimization thing because that's what machine, that's how machine learning works. And there's a reason no systems work like that, you know, in the world, right? There's a re like there, there, are, there are pieces of systems that work like that in in real applications but but there is no like end-to-end -end trained dialogue machine that's you know that, that that means anything to any any person that's used for real applications that is in that closed looped form and it fundamentally comes down to how complex the space of language and dialogues really is uh, and even even though the space of go in a math from a mathematical perspective is vastly complex right and two to the whatever 100 and 13 or 111 or how many points there are on the board, you know, kind of combinations of stones and all this stuff. Like those are huge numbers. Um, but when you start with language, you begin with what is literally mathematically an infinite dimensional vector space. Yep. Yep. And the other part of it is uh, there's no ambiguity in Go. I mean, you place the stone and the same thing happens every single time and there's no room for interpretation. But for language, it's the exact opposite. I mean, you couldn't build a language that didn't rely on assumptions. I mean, if you do, you kind of end up with something like a computer language, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You sort of that's sort of where that goes in a lot of ways. And I mean, those are obviously meaningful and interesting, but like, you know, nobody talks in Python for a reason. <laughs> right. Except Patrick. <laughs> but nobody else. <laughs> uh. Yeah, well, that's actually interesting because it's another thing GPT is really good at. It's really good at writing computer code out of language, um, which I think is oh, a right, fascinating the codex, application. Right? They call they're calling it codex. I yeah, think. there's like a few different ways this has come to life. So you know, there's a bunch of people that have done like you can go like poke through Twitter and find uh, all sorts of good examples of like you can literally build a front end in some cases uh, in you know by by telling the machine what you want the web page to look like. Oh, I've seen those demos are amazing. Uh, but to your other point, right? So sorry, we kind of meandered a bit, but to your other point around uncertainty, I also really, really agree with that, I think. And, and I think it's a big problem in conversational AI, right? Like you have these models that are built on, you know, especially natural language understanding that are built on these transformers and these embedded representations. And, and they're, you know, really good in a lot of ways. They're, they're very smart, but, but they, they can make really dumb mistakes still. Right, that that's not yep. beyond them, uh, and so most industrial strength models, most real systems have some, you know, sort of are forced to have some combination of rules and backstops against these, you know, neural network approaches. Uh, and, and I think a lot of what's under that, or a lot of what's missing, is, you know, is there a system around that has a good idea about how much, how good this, how good this natural language understanding system is likely to be at this problem. And my personal opinion and some of the research work that, that we're doing uh, is that you actually need that system to be fairly decoupled from the system that is whose job it is to make the prediction in the first place. I think you can't have zero coupling. And the art of it is kind of like in what way is, let, let's say, the natural language understanding understander decoupled and and in what ways is it coupled to the system itself? Like those are that's kind of like the hairy edge of this problem. Uh, yep, but I think yep. we haven't done a great job at that yet. And I think there's a lot of research, not we personally, but like we as a culture. And right, I, I think right. there's a lot of research still to be done 
to and I think it'll be important because I think it'll foundationalize some of the other problems that you talked about, right? So if we if we want to start building uh, a, a better hierarchy of understanding for some of these models, like a step on the way there is to ask, like, well, when is it wrong? And like have a separate opinion about when these models are wrong, which can help us develop separate, like an understanding of the categories of types of times when these models are wrong. So you can start to imagine an interplay, right? If I separate that system enough, it's going to begin to categorize, you know, a whole slew of cases where this thing is wrong that it doesn't know about. And then those slew of cases become the basis for an abstraction of, okay, what's a knowledge center, you know, that, that this thing, where, where this thing is weak. Yep. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think just as a field handling uncertainty is, is very, very difficult right now with, with deep networks. I mean, there's, uh, and this is, you know, this is for something simple, like a supervised model, let's say the model that predicts cats and dogs or something. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's still not any consensus. Um, I mean, there's, there's effectively two or three camps. There's one camp that says, well, train, you know, 10 different models, um, either on ten, one tenth of the data or you shuffle the data um, for each model. And then now you'll get 10 different answers. And so, you know, depending on how much those answers vary, you can say how confident you are. Um, there's another camp that is effectively doing the same thing, but within the model. So, you know, you kind of multiply the layers and now you have this distribution. And then there's this camp that says, let's put priors on everything and use kind of Bayesian approaches. And, and none of them work very well. <laughs> I mean, the reason why we don't have, uh, the reason why you can't just go on pytorch.org or tensorflow.com or whatever and, and just get a model with uncertainty is because there's not um, really a method that satisfies it very well. There's a lot of reasons for that. But I think one of the most important ones is, it, you know, sort of broadly goes under the header of like, lang like processes that generate language and how varied they are, right? And, and so I think, you know, it, it, this is one of the things we see in an, in an industrial context all the time is that you can have models that are great uh, and doing well, you know, based on real live training data from real live people that really live talk to the model and and that you but you have now learned to 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 correctly predict. And, and then think, you know, something very subtle about the underlying environment can change. You know, people can start talking about the business promotion in a different way because it's, you know, it's now there's an advertisement that describes in a different way. And all of a sudden, some of these things really start to fall apart. This is one of the areas that for me that that illustrates like why NLU kind of isn't where we think it should be or where we think it is. And, and I think that, you know, mathematically what's going on into that is that, you know, there's the, the generating function for language and the, the infinite dimensionality of this vector space, right, are, you know, allow for, they make it very hard to train models that are really rooted in the semantics as much as we'd like. And, and probably, you know, in the same way that, you know, GPT is existing on this membrane and, and you know, really only seeing what it can see and, and missing these big pieces of reality and, and not having some of this, like, base symbolism to attach to. Uh, you know, the models that are doing the work of conversational AI today are still a little bit, you know, they can be infected with problems like that. And they can be confused by what we call lexical cues more so than we'd like. Right. So a lexical cue, for those who don't know, is just like something more on the surface of language about the word choice and the, the top level design of the words in the sentence versus semantic, which is like, OK, what's that deeper, you know, agreed upon meaning? Yeah. I mean, one thing, one one really prime example of that is cats and dogs. Right. I think that 
you know, we always hear that analogy, like it's raining cats and dogs, or this person's a dog lover, this person's a cat lover. And so our mental model, uh, you know, as a society is that cats and dogs are opposite. And all of us as a child grew up watching movies where cats and dogs didn't like each other, right? I mean, that's a trope, right? And so in our mind, cats and dogs are really far apart. But if you were to use GPT-3, it's going to put them right next to each other. And the reason is websites that talk about cats, a lot of them talk about dogs too. I mean, imagine a website that sells pet food, right? I mean, they're going to be talking about cats and dogs at the same time. And so actually, when you look at anything unsupervised, it's going to put cats and dogs very close together, especially in the grand scheme of anything that could be talked about. But we have this sort of uh, cultural separation and those kind of things are just very hard to put into the model in any meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, I think what you hope is that scenarios like that will be accomplished via like the, the high dimensionality of the embedding space, right? Like you can learn about some of that because on some dimensions and, and high dimensionality is like really hard to visualize as I'm sure you know, and, and really hard to have intuition about because the, the distance metrics and all this start to behave really weird. But you would hope that there'd be some dimensionality where there's like this this separation, right? Which in our minds would correspond to like a character of the animal or something like that, rather than a, you know, a functional a view of the system, right? Because when we go, because we're also not surprised when we go into a pet store and we see cat food next to dog food, right? Like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make us say like, what's, what's wrong with this world, right? And you know, that's so, so we can, you know, we have those like separate dimensions or, or something, you know? So I think I would hope that the representations can accommodate that. But, but I think the challenge to go back to the earlier point is, you know, what are those underlying dimensions? They're not stable, right? Like if I slant a concept like slightly differently, we might, we might redimensionalize that space a little bit differently. And, and so we sort of make them up on the fly in a lot of ways. Obviously there's some touchstones, but, but there's sort of something that we create, you know, dynamically like how do we interact with models at that level you know through the training process or through the you know even a a discursive process in dealing with them which is another thing i really like about gpt3 is that you now sort of talk to the model by giving it examples and can kind of train it with real language that that's also an advance i think is very important and we're going to need to kind of cope with that and figure out how we use it because ultimately the better these things are at at creating abstractions and redimensionalizing, you know what what they're talking about in the ways that we're kind of discussing, you know, the more we're going to need to converse with them to make sure we understand how their minds are working. In the same way that when you and I talk to each other, like we got to get to a baseline about like, is he, you know, what does is he actually a dog hater? Like I have to kind of figure that out first <laughs> to talk to you appropriately about dogs or something. Yeah, I wonder if if someone. You know, so if, if OpenAI is going to train a new GPT model, I wonder if they started with books for babies and, and you know, the random network was biased in, in favor of babies books. And then they literally trained it on books meant for older and older people. And so it kind of followed the same path as a human in terms of what kind of material they consume. I wonder like what that model would presuppose. I feel like there's something maybe really interesting there. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think you, you quickly end up in the world of AGI, right? It's artificial general intelligence. And and it, that definitely by no means an expert there. But I think I think that's kind of where a lot of this stuff goes in the end. It's like, well, I, I have to start teaching these things more like they're a child. 
And I have to start relying. And again, this is why uncertainty is so important. I have to start relying on their own understanding of themselves and their ability to express their understanding of themselves in order to influence them in the ways that I want to and, and have them take right actions. And so you see, it sort of quickly starts to, if you really break it down, I think you start thinking like, wait a second, I've got to imagine this as the, as a more like a human thing that I'm teaching and less like a mathematical process that I'm training. Obviously the math doesn't go away. Right. Right. Um, so we'll dive into a little bit on, on transformers maybe. Um, and then we can back out and look at the whole problem again. So if I remember correctly, my knowledge is very limited, but transformer somehow it takes in, it can take in an arbitrary number of words and then it creates some embedded space of that, that, that arbitrary, that variable length, uh, you know, uh, paragraph, I guess. And now then from that embedded, that's the encoder. And then from that embedded space, you have a decoder that can, uh, emit words and then, and then also emit a uh, transformation to the space. So imagine like you have this embedding that contains all these things that you want to say. And as you say those things, you move to different points of the embedding where now there's less to say, and eventually you emit some special token that says I'm done. Is that, I mean, do I kind of get that right? Or, or like how do transformers work? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's an area that's live, right? There's definitely definitely a lot going on there. So I guess like what I would reference, I think for folks, like one thing that I think is important is this notion of attention, right? So one of the hard problems in language for a long time has been like, how well can a model like reference across a, a great degree of like space between concepts, right? And And so when you look at a problem, like trying to think like a sequence problem, like a time series sequence, Right. You'll, you know, you, you, one of the longstanding problems in time series analysis is like, well, what if I have an effect like last January and now it affects this, this March or something, right? And it's mm -hmm. a macroeconomic underlying effect. And so there's been all this work in, in sort of hand curated feature building in those contexts, which are, these are sequence models as well. So they're fundamentally the, you know, kind of like mathematically the same type of object that you have when you analyze language. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of bespoke techniques to do that in time series analysis and, you know, all the Arima models and just they go, just like tons and tons of work. And I think the same thing was done for many years, you know, in a hand curated way when looking at language. Uh, and so I think one of the one of the advances that's that's pretty important in this context is that, you know, we've begun to, you know, train these models and these transformer based systems in a way that they can locate those long associations. Right. And in a way that they can provide for us, uh, you know, this is kind of another way to talk to the model, right? They can provide for us connections between them, right? You can ask, well, what other words in this sentence does, does this word relate to? Uh, and in an, industrial in, in an industrial context, that's super helpful because as a way of tuning and debugging and, you know, trying to improve systems, right? The, the those sort of like co-reference patterns, and I don't mean co-reference in the literal sense of, you know, co-reference of language, but, but, but these, these patterns of correlations or these patterns of mutual interest or mutual effect become ways to, to find, you know, to go and kind of ferret out the, the misunderstandings that the models are having and, and try to improve them. Got it. Okay, cool. 
That makes sense. Yeah, I think I definitely have to get ramped up on it. You know, my background's in reinforcement learning, and and um, I saw a paper recently about someone using transformers to um, to do sequential decision making, and so transformers are kind of coming into like a battering ram, just coming into my field and so many other fields, and so I have to definitely I have a to do to get to get ramped up on them. But but yeah, I think that that I've have seen the word attention a lot, and yeah, maybe we'll. Uh, well, maybe we'll get you back on and we could do a whole show on Transformers or we could get somehow get ramped up on that. Um, yeah, let, let's pivot to live person. So tell us about about live person and, and what you all do and what kind of services or products you provide. Yeah. So, all right. Live person, you know, fundamentally what we're trying to do, we, we have a some new things we're trying to do as well in, in terms of relating directly to customers. But the the core business of live person for the last 20 years or so has been about, you know, essentially making the connection between us, the people in the world and the brands we have to deal with uh, or want to deal with uh, a little bit better and, and making our lives a little easier because of it. Uh, and, and so that began back in the day with online chat, right? Which is, you know, sort of almost a dirty word now. And, and I think we actually would, would say at live person that, you know, we thought it was a kind of a dirtier word first, right? Not that online chat doesn't have useful, um, useful applications, and we still do a lot of online chat, but we don't see it as the future of, you know, like, hey, I log into a website and, and I have a like a sort of not persistent or like a, a liminal connection with a with an agent on the other side, and I'm chatting with them for five minutes, and then you know if I break the connection and it's gone and I have to start again, we don't see that as like a model. For like a real, for like a really good customer experience, um, or a really good brand experience, for that matter. So, but that is kind of nonetheless like how the company was built because that that model does have some advantages over just the straight phone model that was what was there before. Uh, but as as time has gone on, right, and about I guess it's about four years ago now, maybe five. Live person went went early, you know, into a messaging context and what we call more asynchronous communication, right? So now you've got. Uh, brands and and consumers communicating through, uh, you know, SMS messages, through uh, WhatsApp, through Line in Japan, through whatever, right? There's a sort of umpteen messaging platforms out there. And one of the things we do is we make sure that, you know, you can have a, you can hold a great conversation with your customers on these platforms. But where where that obviously starts to lead, and it's really interesting when you look at the conversations people want to have. And, and what it means to shop that way compared to what it means to shop, um, you know, in kind of the web signature way that we shop today, or you know, in the website context, I mean, the way that we shop today, it's it's fascinating, right? And one of the one of the things, you know, the jokes I sometimes make is like one of my interview questions at Amazon was like, all right, well, help me build a model about, um, you know, whether or not the shopper is about to leave the website, or help me build a model as whether or not this is a gift shop, or how would you build that? Right. And these are things that people just tell you in a conversational context because they're trying to get help. Right. So one of my favorites is a woman talking to a sporting goods company and she's like, hey, I um, I'm late gift shopping for my 12 grandkids and my six great grandkids. Like, can you please help me find some gifts for them? Right. And these, you know, literally like the kinds of things that a company like an Amazon would be like, you know, sifting through web web search and web activity history to try and make an inference about are just things that people need to, that people, they want to, to let you know that this is their problem. They want you to give them help in solving it. You know, they, she, she wanted, she was very interested in the fact that this, you know, this uh, service agent on the end of the line could, 
you know, next year, reach out ahead of time with some proactive offers, right? Like all this stuff that like, you know, can kind of feel seedy if a company's doing it behind the scenes on a website, but feels very natural if you're the one telling the company, this is my problem and I'd like you to help me. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So there's like when I kind of drink the Kool-Aid on this problem and sometimes I drink the Kool-Aid, I feel like what we're building is a way to do a more open and transparent and a little bit better and warmer conversational experience for shopping, which takes you back to the world that we all used to live in kind of before the Internet, where most of shopping was like that. Yeah, I think that to your point, I mean, uh, I've, I've recently been buying all my clothes online since COVID. Um, you know, once you've narrowed down the size and, and, you know, almost everything comes in almost every size. So narrowing down the size doesn't really do anything. Well, you know, it's almost like, like, how do you sort of search for your aesthetic? It's really difficult. Yeah. But I think that, that if it was sequential, like maybe I would search for blue shirt and I would look at what came back and I would realize, okay, really what I need is a blue striped shirt. And, and somehow knowing that this person pivoted to blue striped shirt. That, that now it's like, okay, you have these two things and maybe you would show a striped shirt that's navy because, you know, that stripe part is really important. And so just, yeah, just handling that modality, I think, is is a conversation. And whether you're doing it through a search engine or you're doing it with, you know, text generation, I think that's something that has to be addressed. Well, and if you think about it, like what you really want to understand, if you're in that conversation with someone and trying to, to, to help them buy a shirt, is, is something a little more fundamental about what they're doing, right? Like, are we, on, are we in a situation here? If, I don't know how you shop, but like, you know, I might be in a situation where I've, like, I've, I've already had three copies of this basic shirt and I'm trying to find it in a different color and I know it fits well. And I, and I kind of just mm-hmm. want to get moving yeah. and like, go get myself a fourth one because I love these shirts. Like, it's a pretty uncomplicated mission. And what I want in that situation is someone to show me, you know, all the different copies of that particular item. And, and then maybe, you know, I want a little back and forth on the style I'm looking for and I'm done. You know, or I maybe like have been like poking around the internet. I'm like, oh, you know, I need a little bit of a fashion change. Like, I feel like I'm kind of boring right now and I'm looking for new ideas. And I, you know, I'm looking for a shirt that like, you know, maybe I wouldn't have worn before. And I might need a little like I, I might need a really different experience. Maybe I'm teaching seventh grade and I need a periodic table that's somehow also like WWF. <laughs> right, right. I need the SmackDown. Like I need to turn it over and then, you know, Macho yeah. Man Randy Savage can jump out of it or something. Yeah, like a hydrogen atom and just crush it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like, I think you want those, you know, you want those missions. Under, this is a lot of like where the through line for at least my career sort of, sort of matches between Amazon and Nike and live person. It's like, what are those missions and how do you define them? Uh, and I think the the language context is a, is obviously the best con- context to divine them in. And a lot of what we build is about um, allowing brands to sense that and to identify those missions from the language that their customers give them, so that they can be more helpful. And so this, when we, when we talk about conversational AI, or at least the tools of conversational AI at, at, and how we use them at Live Person, you know, there's at least kind of two big categories, right? One category is is around, of course, like helping brands build these systems so that they can, you know, have automated ways for customers to solve their problems so that it's easier and faster uh, and better for everyone. And then the other side is like, okay, well, how do you like, like, are you set up to really listen to your customers? You know, do you know, for instance, that when, you know, your customer complains about having tried to call you, having tried to reach you on your website and having tried to, you know, to text message with you by the time they're at that point, they've got like an 80% chance that they're going to leave you. Because there's this canonical problem that like that just yep. frankly makes everybody mad. Uh, and, and so 
being able to listen to stuff like that at scale, right? And understand that at scale so that you can provide a better customer experience. Like that's that's another sort of layer of the conversational AI offering that's, that's we think is really important for us and really important for brands. Because in the end, like, you know, it, consumers in America and other places now, we're pretty fickle beasts, right? Like we've been kind of trained by like the Amazons of the world and, and other companies that have pioneered in customer service, you know, to create like these really positive service experiences for us that they're really different than 30 years ago, right? But now that's the norm. Like, and if you want to, you want to keep building your customer base, if you don't have a captive audience, if you're not like a cable company or something where like nobody can leave you, then you have to be great at this now. And, and you, you have to kind of blur that line between what are you, you know, how are you solving their problems? And then how does that translate into future growth between you and them and building that strong relationship? So, so we kind of build products on both sides of that, right? We build natural language understanding with both of those use cases in mind, for instance. It sounds like another part on the product side, though, I think would be really tricky would be knowing when to hand off to a real person. That that seems like something that a lot of companies, you know, wouldn't know how to do. They would really rely on you for that. Yeah, that's right. And I think like that's actually like a nook in a, a much bigger problem, which is how do I understand how well this system is doing? with my customers? How do I understand the quality of these conversations between the computer and the person? Uh, and there is not good tooling for that. This is one of these like foundational areas where I think, you know, you, you just don't find anything good in the industry right now because it's a it's one of these annoyingly hard problems, right? And it, it's kind of related to all the abstract stuff we've been talking about. Like, when does a model know it's doing well? When does it not? And like, wh how, how deep an understanding and how introspective is that model in the first place? And the answer is typically not very. So, so you can't rely on the model to do it. You need to kind of build some of these, you know, these separate systems to be able to see this. And some of that requires like really rolling up your sleeve and sleeves and doing some dirty work and being like, what are like the top 10, you know, kind of like, what's the right way to describe like the top 10 kinds of problems that people face when they're trying to talk to automated systems and, and how they break down and how that customer experience goes wrong. So we spent a lot of time on that. We have products, you know, that, that we're bringing to market right now, in fact, on measurement, you know, the, this got this like, the product has this pithy name of Max, right? Which is the Meaningful Automated Connection Score, <laughs> nice. um, which is really about like, hey, how how good or bad was your CX in in these automated conversations, and like, where should you improve it? Uh, so, and it's important for two reasons, right? One, you need to know how well you're doing in order to have any sensible business strategy, and two. Uh, tuning and optimizing these AI systems is like really hard. It, it, I shouldn't say it's really hard. It's it's a lot more of work and ongoing work than people at first often conceptualize yep, that it's going to be. That's right. right. You got to think of it like if you're building a website, you don't build it on a Thursday, send it live, and then don't touch it for a year, right? Like you would never do that. Uh, but a lot of people think about conversation, oh, I'll build the bot, I won't touch it, it's done. But it's really, it's an ongoing process iteration and, and we need better tools to, in the same way we do website A-B testing, in the same way that we have a, a bunch of tagging and, you know, and, and, and kind of infrastructure and software built up around learning what's working about your web presence and improving it, uh, we need the same thing. You need the same things if you're going to learn about how to improve your conversational AI. And that's part of what this metric and the system is about is, is helping you quickly locate places where the conversations got wrong. Where did the bot get stuck in a circle, which drives us all crazy? Where did the NLU just like totally get, you know, just like totally barf and lose it and like, and and just like completely break the customer trust, right? So we were like our play 
in general has really been about quality. And one of the, one of the, obviously one of the most critical pieces of quality is like, do you really have good measurement? Do you have good understanding about what quality is? And do you have good pointers as to where quality went wrong? Yeah. I mean, this is a huge, huge problem. I think the people who, uh, if someone can even crack this, um, in a generic way, it would be, it would move the entire industry a mile forward because I, I think, um, you know, we have all the same issues where it's, it's just so hard to triage one of these situations. And what, what we end up doing, you, you're probably doing something similar is, is just coming up with so many metrics on, you know, for example, how many people are clicking on this, like, what's the click rate? What's let's use Amazon example. What's the click rate? What's the conversion rate? How many people abandon the whole site? Um, how many people bounce? All of that stuff. And then you have this other, you have this, this downstream problem where as soon as you define a metric, you create an incentive. And so people, uh, you know, machine learning engineers at your company are going to try to drive that metric up. And, and so typically what happens is eventually something that's not being recorded will start to suffer, right? And so now you have to make a metric to track that. And, and so you end up like just adding more and more balls in the air. And, and it's because you're in this arms race with yourself, right? And so, yeah, yeah the, it's, it's just so, so difficult to, 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 to go through that process. It's a little bit of like a metrics alphabet soup in some ways. One of the things we did to deal with that, the first thing we did before we started kind of working on this Max project was we sat down and said like, well, we, we need to organize like this system, like we need to organize the metrics somehow because, you know, people are doing exactly what you're saying. And like a conversation I probably had five times now is I'll go east before the pandemic, I would go physically to brands all the time. And now I talk to them on the phone, but, but they, you know, I'd sit down and be like, okay, well, how's it going? And they're like, oh yeah, we built this bot, you know, and it's whatever platform they built it on. And they're like, it's great. It's got an 80% containment rate. It's awesome. I'm like, that's great. Like, what are you doing with the 80% extra capacity you now have in the human contact center. Like what, like, what did you choose to do with all those people? You must have like people at their desk with nothing to do. Right. And the answer is never like, oh yeah, yeah. Like here's what we did with it. And the answer is always like, well, no, 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 actually volumes in the, in the human side have actually gone up or, or they've, they basically stayed the same, but, but the bot's doing great. Right. And it's cause it's fundamentally cause this concept of a containment is, is just a very broken way to think about whether or not the bot served, served the person in the way that it needed, you know, it solved the problem or not. So one of, like I said, one of the things we did was we sat down, we said, well, let's organize the metrics into, you know, some conceptual framework that people can use so, so that they can see, because we're not going to get out of this. Like there's not going to be one magic number that does everything. This is actually a highly multivariate problem. There's lots of different ways to think about what good means. And people are adapting. As soon as you make a metric, someone will try to game it and then they'll cause another problem. <laughs> so. Right, right. So you can't, you can't like kind of live on that one. It's just, it's too unstable. Yep. So, so we built this framework, you know, so, so we, we gave it the pithy name of the four E's, right? And there's an efficiency vector of metrics. There's a, you know, effectiveness in solving the customer problem vector of metrics. There's a, an emotion, right? What's the customer's emotional response? And now I'm going to like totally blank on the fourth E, which is going to make me super embarrassed. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, so we've, we've split into these categories and under them, we put both both sort of existing contact center metrics that people are used to like repeat contact rate within an hour, within three hours, within a day. Uh, and then some of these newer metrics like, Hey, what's the max CX on this? Or, you know, what's the sentiment of the customer and, you know, is measured by these machine learning models right now you can begin to give brands a sort of 
reasonable target to optimize for that makes conceptual sense to them. The fourth E, by the way, was effort, right? How much work ah, did it nice. take to solve this problem? And that's really, these are like much more connected to things that we care about as customers. Like when I tried to contact you, did it work or not? That's effectiveness. Like how much of a pain and frustrating was it? That's emotion. How much work did I actually have to go through to do it? That's my effort, right? So, so those correlate, and these concepts I think correlate a lot better to what a great CX is. So, so we spent a lot of time on that. And then that set up, again, like some of the max work and some of the analytics work that that um, that we've done subsequently as well. Very cool. Very cool. So what is something that makes and I know with with COVID, we're all working from home. And so and so everyone's uh, job looks pretty much the same. There's 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 kids running around and there's a dog and there's, you know, <laughs> but like but like before COVID or maybe projecting into the future, what about live person? is really unique or you kind of walk into the office or maybe you talk to the folks and you feel like this is something I haven't really seen anywhere else. Yeah. You mean like in terms of being inside the company or in terms of what the product offers? It could be, I know this is, this is inside the company. So it could be, it could be, you know, everyone plays ping pong on Thursdays, or it could be something about the nature of the kind of, the kind of uh, ethos that you've built, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I mean, I, I don't know. You probably have to bring people on in on the like on the team to make sure I'm not lying to you. But I can tell you about what, some of the things we strive to do and some of the things that I see as successful at. I don't think it's easy. I guess let, let me talk about the science domain. Like, I, I don't think it's easy to have to to combine two critical concepts that are important for real success in like scientific research and and product development. And those two concepts are one, like the truth seeking. Uh, you know, are you really satisfied with what you've done or could it be better, you know, or what's really wrong here? Those kinds of questions. And then two, like a, a spirit of real collaboration and support. Right. So oftentimes, like when I was a physicist, right, like the, the way that physics solves this problem is by not solving it. They just let like they just go after option one. And, you know, it's 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 not at all uncommon to for the the chief like discourse between two physicists to begin with, like. You know, for somebody to start out with, well, that's great what you said, but let me tell you all the ways in which you are an idiot, right? Like literally, <laughs> you know, the we have a term for that. We call that the uh, intelligent jerk. Yeah, it's it's a it's an archetype, an anti-hero of the of the tech world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's very common. It, and and like, there's a sense to it logically. Like, if you don't have some of that disagreeableness, and and I and I mean that like literally in the psychological sense you know, you run into like too much conformity and you don't do great work, right? Like you, you can't actually do well without some degree of that. But like to find a group of people that can marry that and can have that same impulse and understand how to express it in a way that is constructive, right? Rather than destructive and like builds partnership rather than tearing it down. Uh, those are special people. And we work very hard to, you know, to really staff ourselves with that combination of skills, like up and down the science org. And I'm pretty pleased with how we've done. I think, I think it's one of my, it's, it's without a doubt, my favorite place to go to work and, and do science work and learn about, you know, research that I've ever had. And I had good situations at Amazon, a good situation at Nike. I'm not saying they were bad, they were great, but this, I think we've done something special by prioritizing, you know, that combination. We have not hired great people that we felt like just weren't going to hit dimension two very well. Yep. Yeah, it's a really good, really good point. Because the other thing too is um, people who are really good, you know, and have the right, you know, emotional quotient and 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 have that ethic and 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 have all those those pieces, they're going to grow really quickly. 
And people go quickly, you know, I don't know what, what data there is on this, but, but people go quickly will, will maybe want to change teams because there's an opportunity somewhere else or change companies or something like that. But, but people who are in over their head or who don't have uh, the right character, those tend to be the people who stay forever. And then, so it's like, it's so difficult to, I mean, so much time needs to be spent to get spent to get that right. Because yeah. otherwise, you know, you, there could be whole years where there's, there's problems that, that, that take a very long time to sort out. Yeah. I think there's some dynamics like you're talking about that are very real. You know, I felt like, I think one, you know, one partial antidote to at least the first part, I don't have a good antidote to the second one, but I think one thing we're also really fortunate about at LivePerson is we have pretty amazing data and capabilities to work with, right? There's hundreds of millions of goal-oriented dialogues coming through the platform every day. Obviously, we use those thoughtfully, carefully, and, and respecting all the contractual arrangements we make. We don't use all those conversations the same way, but different brands have different expectations about how we use that data. But nonetheless, like there's lots and lots of amazing conversations to work with. And there's also tens of thousands of people sitting on the platform who can inform, you know, conversational AI with like with their opinions and their expert opinions. Right. All these agents sitting there uh, able to give feedback to the systems and tell them when they're working well and when they're not. And so some of those tools, I think, like fuel, you know, much more so than anything that I or the other managers on the team do every day, fuel like people coming and, and really kind of hunkering down with live person and doing, doing good work for a long time. So it's, it's been nice to experience that, but yeah, in general, I agree with your, your assessment of the dynamics. Like you get somebody, you know, you know, who's struggling on one of these two dimensions of work and it, it's hard for them to leave because it's like, there's a lot more risk for them. Yep. Yep. So, so for folks who are listening to this and, and completely enamored, they want to do conversational AI, they want to get into this field. Uh, does live person have any openings and, and can you kind of break it down into, you know, does live person have internships? Do you have full-time positions? And, and if there are, you know, post COVID, you know, if there are, uh, geographic locations you want to focus on, what are those? Sure. So the first answer or the first thing to say is we're hiring a lot. Like the company's grown. You can go read our public record reports. We are a public company. So you can see how we're doing and we're growing rapidly. So we, we have a lot to do, you know, I, this year I'm really trying to focus on building an exceptional scientific research team that's going to look farther afield in time. Right. So, so we've typically had at live person, a strategy of, well, like we want to work on research, we want to work on science, but we want it to be in the context of being productizable in the near to medium term. So really not much more than six months out. We want to see this come to life in a way that impacts the product. And I, and I think that was right for where we were and all the stuff we needed to build. There was a lot of obvious stuff to do. But now we're in a different place, and I think we want to be looking on one, two, three, four-year timeframes for how some of this stuff turns into technology that we can use, uh, and and we want to go a little deeper with academic partnerships as well. So, so you know, I, I'm staffing a, just a full team on research with with kind of that mandate, looking for a lead for that who is who wants to come in and say, okay, I see this data you've got, I understand you guys have a basic dialogue problem you're trying to solve. And I want to go push science research in this direction in partnership with this, you know, academic institution over the next three, four years. And here's the agenda and, and is going to help drive that. And I mean, I have some ideas about where that should go, but I'm really looking for a very senior lead to come in and, and um, you know, and take the reins on that. So we're actively recruiting there. And they, of course, will actively recruit for the team, you know, that, that works with them. 
Uh, but we have other jobs and, and other opportunities as well. Live person's an engineering company. You know, on my team, you know, I hire um, analysts as well. We, we do like I run a lot of the analytics products for live person. And we hire, of course, machine learning engineers. We hire people to build backend systems that are um, supporting all the model building and the model training and the model management. And, you know, we're doing a, a bunch of work of migrating pieces of the platform into the cloud. And so there's, there's a lot of like real engineering work. So, so one vector that often works well uh, is for uh, if someone has an, a strong engineering background and they're interested in this space, right? There is a, a you know, there's definitely work to do to become an expert in the, the science and, and the field. But there are ways in, I think, to the there's a lot of engineering work that provides like a, a boots on the ground it kind of introduction to the technology stack and and kind of gets you. And then you kind of get into the flow where we're now like, OK, you're coming to our Friday brown bags. You're talking to you're working closely with the scientists because you're building things that they're using. And, and so you're in conversations with them in a different way. It's a it's a really live place to learn and grow. So, I mean, I would, I would come, if I were someone with a strong engineering background who was looking to get into this field, I'd be looking for a way to do it with a role like that, rather than trying to say like, well, okay, I'm going to go to boot camp for six weeks. I'm going to read a bunch of papers. I'm going to do some, you know, prototype like chatbots, and then I'm going to be ready to do a research role tomorrow. I think, you know, maybe there are some people out there that are just like astoundingly fast learners and that will work. But I think, for most of us regular humans, you know, you want to kind of, yep. you want to find a way, like, I'm going to build this into my life for a couple of years. Yep. And there's so much tribal knowledge, so much tribal knowledge that, I mean, it's that boot camp doesn't exist where you're going to learn the tribal knowledge to be able to ace it, a, a, a science, research scientist interview. So, yeah, I think your advice is spot on. Yeah. And I mean, in addition to acing the interview, even if you can, like, and you show up on day one, like, are you really are you ready to do the job or are you set, are you setting yourself up to succeed? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have um, internships? You have a lot of folks who are maybe in the middle of their college and they're looking for something over the summer, but then they're going to go back to college afterwards. Does that exist? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I just, uh, we just set up a meeting, I think for next week to sit down and talk about how we're approaching next year's uh crop of internships and, and what cool. we want to do there. So yeah, we will be doing internships and we do them all, all year. We have interns right now and it, you know, that for different, different disciplines and different times makes sense. Right. But, but there are a lot in the summer and uh, you know, we've been focusing a little bit on some of the graduate students, you know, the last year or two. So it's been mostly PhD or master's degree students who are coming in and doing internships, but I think we're going to change that this year uh, and have, you know, a little bit more undergrad, work to be done. The, the team's gotten a lot bigger. And, and one thing that means is that there's, you know, a, a wider variety of like types of work that needs doing. And I, I think we have some spots for a really good undergrad research project or two that, that look pretty interesting. Like I said, we're kind of still in the middle of figuring it out, but, but that's, that's basically where we're headed. And, and for me, I like to make sure that, Hey, if we're going to put an internship together, we want it to be something that's like a little risky, right? It's a great time to take a risk but also something where we see like a legitimate chance for success and like, it's going to, we're going to learn something either way and everyone's going to benefit from it. So, so I think we'll be in a position to do that with undergrads next year. We're, we're definitely continuously in a position to do that with grad students, you know, that that's not going to change. Uh, so we'd love to hear from people who are interested in, you know, possibly joining us in that way. Cool. Excellent. And so if folks want to check out live person, you can go to liveperson.com and you can, um, you know, see what they're all about. 
And if you want to reach Joe, you could reach Joe at jbradley at lifeperson.com. And um, you can shoot him. I'm sure you can shoot him a resume. He'll fo- forward it to the right folks. Or, or there's probably a place on, on Live Person where, where there's like a careers page or something like that where you can... You can definitely apply online. You can definitely reach yeah. out to me too if you want to want to say hey. Uh, and you know, be, would love to hear from the audience here. As I mentioned before we get started, like I think you guys do a pretty cool, pretty cool podcast here. I like how how application focused it is, and yeah, it feels like it has a lot of a lot of weight to it. So I'm sure your um, your listenership are are all pretty cool people. Yeah, definitely, and they're they're super motivated. We've actually connected a lot of interns to careers, to at least to internships. And so, and, uh, and, and we're constantly getting emails. Uh, the, fo- the show's been out for a while. So we're constantly getting emails from folks who have landed uh, full-time jobs or even been in them for several years. And it's, that's really special. So, so I feel, I feel good about, uh, I think there's, there's going to be people out there who are a great match for live person. And, uh, and now if you're listening to this, you're one of those matches, um, you know, check out the show notes, check out the website and and get connected it's, it sounds really oh actually so we didn't cover location so where is live person based yeah we're a distributed company now uh we took i mean it, it's evolving like i think a lot of companies are but when when the pandemic started we wanted to give certainty to everyone early on and so you know we said hey if you want to move where you want to move go move right like as long as you can do your job right as long as it doesn't impact your work you know we were, we're pretty open and we're not sort of demanding people be ready for a mass return or anything like that because we wanted we wanted people to live their lives you know now that we're coming out of the pandemic i think we're well, hopefully coming out i guess we're resurging a little bit but as we sort of take steps out we are beginning to open physical offices again we have an office open in seattle here that i've been to you know we do COVID testing either the morning before you come in or you go do it at the office before you come in uh, we have a, we're obviously following all the the policies and protocols that we you know they're local to the areas and we have our own sort of standards on top of that. So and I so I think we will be coming back more and more physically. Uh, we're probably going to maintain a high degree of flexibility about where people work and 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 how that you know comes to life. We have some policies and standards around you know how to manage the pay scales and things that that like you know you sort of have to do from a corporate sense for for the economics to make sense. But I think we've done that in a fair way, and I think we're open-minded. And particularly when it comes to great, you know, science professionals and researchers, and you know, folks with a lot of machine learning engineering expertise, and those those people that are, you know, really like really doing great in these in these very hot fields. Like these are the kinds of people we want to be really flexible with. Like we think the most important thing is for you to come and work with us, and for us to get some good work done together. And the exact details about the location and all that are, are pretty secondary. Yep. Yep. Totally makes sense. Yeah. I think that's consistent with where everyone's at. And uh, I'm hoping they come up with some nice whiteboarding tool. I mean, that is really what as scientists, this is the thing we need is some some way to whiteboard together. Yeah. We're looking at that right now. We've got a couple of options that I, I want to get put in the office and try out to see how they work. I, I don't know if they're any good yet or not. And we haven't really tried out the tech, but, but I kind of agree. Like, I'd love to be sitting here and like have a whiteboard here that I can write on and that like the writing of my, you know, my partner on the other end of the communication like appears and it's, it's almost as if they were here. Like somebody solves that, they'll be billionaires overnight. Yeah. I, I wonder if, you know, in general, the VR headset is never going to be so convenient that I would wear it all day. But I wonder if maybe that's 
Uh, everyone keeps talking about the metaverse. I have no idea what the metaverse is. I'm assuming it's connected to VR, but but that might be something where where we could go into VR for an hour and then there could be some holodeck like thing, and then and then somehow at the end it would accumulate a whole bunch of notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it'll be interesting to see how we solve these problems. They're they're much bigger problems now, or more important problems now than they were a couple of years ago. Yeah, I wonder about VR too. I've, I, I guess the metaverse is the what the old Neil Stevenson reference from Snow Crash or something, which is. Oh, that's right. Oh, it's been so long. I think I had to read that in high school. It's been a long time since I should I should give it a reread. It's one of the only sci-fi books I know of that where the three ring binder appears uh, in a starring role, at least for the first part of it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's been a while, though. Yeah, that's where I think they were able to they someone I think it's like a murder mystery or something or so at some point I think somebody dies. Yeah, they're somehow killed in VR. I mean, it's it's I very, very uh, so, not lucid at all memories of, of that book. Language is a virus, right? Is this whole concept he's exploring. And I think there's this capability to like, you can, you can show people information and it infects them and gets them sick. If you show it to them in the metaverse or whatever, it's, it's been a while for me too, but I think, I think it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. We should make that book of the show next time. Which yeah, means we need fun. to read it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fun. If you guys ever want to do a Stevenson fest or something, uh, he's, uh, I'll be, I'd be happy to come back. Oh, cool. All right. We might take you up on that. Um, cool. Joe, thank you so much. I know we're, we're over time by, by a lot, but I really appreciate you spending the extra time and, and, and chatting with us. It's been absolutely amazing. And it's been, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. The Feelings Mutual is a super fun conversation. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come on and, and chat with you guys. Very much appreciate it. And I love like, the depth and the quality of the discussion. So, so thank you so much for facilitating that. Cool. And uh, thanks for everyone out there. I think you continue to support us on Patreon and on Audible, and, and we really appreciate that. I've been uh, trying to post a bit more on Twitter. You know, I, in the past, I've mainly used Twitter to send show notes, but I'm trying to put some more content on there. If I see something that I think is pretty cool uh, you know, and, and related to, to coding and, and tech, uh, I've been trying to share more content there. So follow us on Twitter. Follow us on on all the other ones as well, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook. Any of those will definitely will we'll definitely be posting the show notes there every time as they come out, and uh, and subscribe. You know, we can if we're not on a, a streaming platform at this point, let us know. I think enough people have let us know about enough platforms that we're on all of them. But there's there's new ones coming out all the time, so definitely keep us up to date. Uh, keep us honest if there's something we're not on, and uh, we'll catch everyone in two weeks. Thank you so much. Music by Eric Barndollin. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide an attribution to uh, Patrick and I and share alike in kind.